This is Thinking About OBGYN with your hosts, Antonia Roberts and Howard Harrell. Antonia? Howard? What are we thinking about on this episode? Well, we were planning to have a special guest on this episode, but things don't always work out as planned. We are still looking forward to talking to her later this month. But for now, I think it's time that we talked about progesterone for recurrent pregnancy loss. And then hopefully if there's time, there's also some more studies about neonatal and and childhood outcomes related to epidurals in labor and also about fetal growth restriction. Okay. Well, we've been, I guess, putting off progesterone topic because it's a heavy subject and something that is at least controversial in practice. And so we need to give it the attention it deserves. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's heavy for sure. Current miscarriages is just awful. And it's especially when there's no correctable factors identified on a workup and we're left without any answers and, and really nothing to help prevent it from happening again. And so people will hear about progesterone somewhere. It doesn't even come from doctors necessarily. It might come from a friend that had the same situation happen and someone prescribed it to them or maybe they hear about it online. But I've had patients beg me to prescribe them progesterone as soon as they get pregnant, even after they agree that there's no good evidence that it'll help them, because I'll tell them that and they'll say, I understand. But just in case there's even the slightest fraction of 1% that it could increase their chance of, of carrying a pregnancy, then they want that. And then I'll read the studies that say, yeah, it could have a slight benefit for certain people. For example, as recently as in 2020, and probably even more recently than that, major journals like AJOG have published reviews that support using progesterone in the first trimester to prevent miscarriage. And so I'll I'll read that kind of stuff and think, okay, what's the harm? They really want it. It'll give them peace of mind. And it's progesterone. It's made by their own bodies. That's definitely my experience over the years. And of course, we all, even when you know the evidence, you'll write the script sometimes. Sort of, I guess, for fear of losing the patient or her going somewhere else or something bad happening and her blaming you. It's it's really a difficult mm-hmm. and precarious situation. But but did you see, speaking of AJOG, did you see the article in this month's November 2021 AJOG about cancer risk to babies born after their mothers took progesterone in the first trimester? The risk was throughout different trimesters, but it was definitely highest with first trimester exposure. So when you say what harm could it do? Well, that might be the answer to that question. And I don't want to sound like a broken record. We've talked about this before. But if we don't know that an intervention specifically has benefit for a patient, then we shouldn't use it because the harms are often unknown. This is the story of DES, which was a hormone given to women for the same reason. It was thought to help prevent miscarriage. And people said, what's the harm? It's a hormone. If it helps even one person, it must be a good thing. And doctors kept giving DES to women, even after early studies said it was ineffective. And it took until the 1970s to see that it was causing cancer in the offspring of children. And now, of course, it's a big scandal and a cautionary tale. But we forget it, it seems like, very often. And here we have, in this month's Gray Journal, this new report, which we actually talked about before, but it had been presented at a conference earlier this year, I think. But we talked about this, and the children of women who were exposed to 7-hydroxyprogesterone early in pregnancy to prevent miscarriage, these children were at an increased risk of cancer. So I feel like we should have definitive evidence of benefit before we use something because there really are no free therapeutic passes. There just aren't things that we get to use just in case it might help, just just for the heck of it. We need evidence that it works, and that evidence should be from quality replicated trials. So I think we need to come back and talk about this evidence for progesterone. Yes. So we we had also talked about that study in a prior episode. It was an endocrinology meeting in March of 2021. But now that it's in AJOG, we can see some more details about it. So this was a retrospective study of just over 18,000 pregnancies that that had resulted in live birth in Oakland, California between 1959 and 1966. 
So that's roughly like my parents' generation. And of these births, 1% of the moms had at some point in their pregnancies received 17-hydroxy progesterone. That is 234 of them. And separately, a total of 1,008 of the babies that were born ultimately were diagnosed with some kind of cancer later in their lives. And this study found that there was enough overlap between the 17-hydroxy progesterone group and the kids that got cancer that they deemed it to be a risk factor. There was an increasing association, too, with having been exposed earlier and also having a higher dose, which they defined as getting three shots or more. And so overall, it was a twofold increase in the risk for cancer, but then it was much higher for specific types of cancer, especially colon and prostate and childhood brain cancer. So Howard, can we talk about the studies that conclude that progesterone can maybe reduce the risk of recurrent miscarriage? Because now, I, if I told a patient that progesterone could give her baby cancer when they grow up, my patient might think that the trade-off is either have a miscarriage or take progesterone and have a baby that gets cancer. And I want to know, is that statistically like an accurate trade-off? Well, I guess we'd have to, you know, really dive into the numbers. Before we talk about those studies, I would say that in terms of, you know, sort of fulfilling the criteria for a, a causality and not just association, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of evidence about progesterone and, and different hormones like this being endocrine disruptors. And then, as you pointed out, thinking about fulfilling some of the criteria for causality, there was a dose-dependent effect in that data that you showed and also, you know, temporal-related effects. So there's a lot in here that does imply actual causality, not just a statistical association. So we'd have to define what the cancers are and what those risks are, and we'd have to show objectively what the advantage is to taking progesterone and then have an informed conversation. I can imagine in the days of DES, if people believed that DES was helpful, and even if they knew that it could increase the risk of vaginal cancer in the offspring, that people might have such a conversation. Well, I'll take the risk. I'd rather have a child with some increased risk of over baseline and not have a child. That's essentially the scenario you've presented. But of course, we accept that, I believe I accept, I don't know if everybody does, that DES was not effective. And, and unfortunately, we knew that 20 years before we knew about the cancers. So the actual efficacy of progesterone for reducing the risk of recurrent miscarriage is really important. So I think more likely the trade-off is going to be, would you rather have a baby with an average risk of cancer, in other words, a mom not exposed to progesterone, or have a baby with an elevated risk of cancer? That is to say, her chance of having a baby is very similar whether or not you give of progesterone. And, and we'll look at this evidence. There, There is no evidence, really. You ask for evidence that it may work. I'm not sure there is. At least much more similar risk than the risk for cancer is for the baby with or without progesterone. So if these were equal outcomes, then you, you, you would have to argue that the cancer risk negates any benefit. Now, the 2020 Gray Journal Review that you referred to discusses two trials called Promise and Prism. I always want to be the guy that comes up with the names of these trials. I just think that would be cool. <laughs> yeah. And drug names, I should get that job. Now, Promise studied 836 women with three or more unexplained miscarriages, so recurrent aborters, who were trying to conceive again naturally. This was conducted in 45 hospitals in the Netherlands, the United Kingdom, and I believe this was published in 2016. It was a double-blinded, placebo-controlled trial with the intervention arm getting 400 micrograms of micronized progesterone vaginally twice a day, which is a lot, from six weeks or earlier and stopping at 12 weeks. The outcome they looked at was live birth beyond 24 weeks gestation. This outcome occurred in 63% of the placebo group and in 66% of the treatment group. Okay, so 3% greater chance of live birth, but, but they concluded that could have been random chance. And I know you hate p-values, but their p-value was, was definitely not significant right? Yeah, this p-value was not significant at all. And and I think we have to avoid getting caught up in 63, 66, you know, 65, 64, 67, 62. The reason why we do null hypothesis testing is to see what the likelihood is, the probability is that the data we're looking at is random or, or significant. So this failed null hypothesis testing. It's a negative study. The p-value was 0.45, 0.45. So the authors concluded, quote, there's no evidence that first trimester 
progesterone therapy improves outcomes in women with a history of unexplained recurrent miscarriage, end quote, period. And that was a study I remember when it was released that the author was interviewed, I think, on the British Medical Journal podcast or website. I don't remember specifically. I didn't find it, but I remember listening to this. And he was asked if his new study would change practice in the UK and elsewhere. And he said something to the effect that, well, this isn't the first study to show that progesterone is ineffective. And that's what the literature has consistently and generally said for decades. But unfortunately, he didn't think it would change practice because none of the prior studies that said that progesterone was ineffective, none of those had changed practice. So he wasn't optimistic that this study would add much to it. Now, as usual in studies like this, you look at subgroup data and things like this and try to drill down. And they explored the hypothesis that the more miscarriages a mom had, say four or five, then maybe the more potential benefits you might see by taking progesterone in the next pregnancy. In other words, if it doesn't work for women with three priors, what about four or five or six or something like that? But the subgroups of women with those higher numbers of prior miscarriages was just too small to test those that hypothesis with the study data that they had. So this is just a negative study. This study says that progesterone does not work even for women with three prior miscarriages. Okay, that was the PROMISE trial. So then the PRISM trial looked at 4,153 patients at 48 different hospitals in the UK who presented with bleeding during the first 12 weeks of pregnancy. They were also randomized and double-blinded to either placebo or the 400 micrograms of vaginal progesterone, and they took it through 16 weeks gestation, and their outcome was live birth at 34 weeks or greater. And they found that this outcome occurred in 72% of the placebo group and 75% of the treatment group. So again, 3% better with progesterone, but again, with a non-significant p-value, so a negative study. I always say, I caution people, when people present studies, sometimes at grand rounds or the way drug reps like to present studies sometimes, they'll just talk about the data, that 3% better. We've seen 3% better in two studies now. But again, if it's not statistically significant, then just due to the power analysis of the study, that doesn't mean anything. It could just easily be with the same statistical probability, it could be the other way around where the treatment group was 72% and the placebo group was 75%. So that is not a statistically significant difference because it's likely to occur just with chance. But this study was actually done by the same author, the guy I was mentioning on the his podcast. He wanted to look and see if progesterone had more impact in this context of a threatened abortion, that is a woman who was already bleeding. So this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine three years later in, in 2019. And as you said, it's another negative study. I, I'll read their conclusion, quote, among women with bleeding in early pregnancy, progesterone therapy administered during the first trimester did not result in significantly higher incidence of live birth than placebo. And of course, they actually gave the progesterone up to 16 weeks, which is a little bit different, not just the first trimester. Now, following up on the previous idea that there might be some benefit in giving progesterone to women with an increasing number of miscarriages, they did try to break down a number of different exploratory hypotheses, including women with three or more miscarriages who were bleeding. Remember, the first study only looked at women with three or more miscarriages not bleeding. This is this subgroup would be three miscarriages and bleeding. So among those women, those women had a 14 percentage point higher live birth rate in the progesterone group compared to the treatment group. So in other words, 57% of women in the placebo group had live births and 71% of women in the treatment group in this subset analysis. And the p-value for this subgroup was 0.007. Well, that sounds more significant and i and that's what the the ajog.2020 article kind of had indicated as well in their conclusions so that's a risk ratio of 1.28 um, that would appear to be favoring progesterone i i think it's just a little bit interesting that the treatment group for that arm the bleeding with three prior miscarriages had the same live birth rate as the placebo groups for basically every other arm in in that study and also also similar in in the promise study yeah, sometimes when you see data like that, you wonder if one arm or the other just has a unique enrollment that skews the statistics. And so that is an interesting point. But yeah, the risk ratio for live birth with progesterone treatment, uh, 1.28, 
in women bleeding with three or more prior miscarriages is still lower than the risk ratio of two for babies getting cancer. So there's still a trade-off there maybe to consider. But I wouldn't be taken by for too much of a ride that this is even an important finding. So let me explain why. The authors in this subgroup analysis studied 10 different subgroups. They looked at a lot of things. Maternal age over below 35, body mass index over and below BMI of 30, estimated gestation, at when they presented with bleeding, how much bleeding they seem to have, things like that. Number of prior miscarriages, number of gestational sacs, race, history of polycystic ovarian syndrome, history of a prior leap procedure. They looked at 10 different things and broke their data down in those 10 different subgroups to see if they could find a statistically significant result. Now, in a study that had over 4,000 women in it to provide sufficient power to find a difference that they were looking for in their primary aim, the subgroup of women with three prior miscarriages or more with bleeding was less than 300 women. This subgroup analysis then was likely underpowered to answer the question of whether or not women with three or more miscarriages who present with bleeding benefit from progesterone. With continued enrollment, you might see those groups level out. And so enrollment in the appropriate power analysis to answer the question is very important here. The previous study that they did looked at women with recurrent miscarriage, three or more miscarriages, and they said that women in that category did not benefit from progesterone. And that study was powered to answer that question. And it's not like some of those women didn't have bleeding. A third of women have first trimester bleeding. Now, the p-value here of 0.007 sounds great, but because the authors looked at 10 different subgroup hypotheses, then they didn't and did not correct for the multiple comparators problem. Then if we do that, you'd find that a significant p-value threshold using a Bonferroni correction, a significant threshold would be 0.005 and their finding was 0.007. So actually their finding was not even statistically significant when it's corrected for the multiple comparators problem. Remember that subset analyses are not meant to inform treatment but they're meant to inform future randomized, adequately powered controlled trials. They are hypothesis generating, not hypothesis confirming. This is one of the most common mistakes in our literature. So if someone is claiming that progesterone has been shown or proven to be effective in this subgroup of women with three or more miscarriages with vaginal bleeding, then they just don't understand the statistical methodological errors that come into play. Let me explain the multiple comparators problem just briefly. If I hypothesize that progesterone helps with prevent miscarriage. And I use normal null hypothesis testing tools, things that generate p-values. Well, if I accept 0.05, if I accept a 5% alpha in my study, and I'm powered to find that, there is a 5% chance, by chance alone, that I'll generate a significant value. So if I do that in one study with one hypothesis, 5% of the time I can expect, even if everything else is perfect, for there to be a false positive finding. Now, if I do that a second time, and a third time, and a fourth time, etc., imagine if 10 different trials, all underpowered trials, by the way, were done to look at that study. What's the chance then that at least one of them would have a false positive conclusion? Every time you test a hypothesis that if your goal is to come away with just a 5% confidence that or less that what you found is true, you have to adjust for how many times and how many experiments and how many hypotheses you test. So this is called the multiple comparators problem. And subgroup analysis notoriously are fraught with this error. Now, the Bonferroni correction is an easy way of not, not necessarily very accurate, but it's an easy way back of the envelope to understand p-values in such subset analyses. You simply take the p-value that is normally accepted, 0.05, and divide it by the number of hypotheses being tested. Now, there sometimes is interplay between hypotheses. Some hypotheses like reported blood loss at a surgery and postoperative hemoglobin, they have some dependency on them. So these are meant to be independent hypotheses, and there are advanced methods for correcting for interdependency among hypotheses. But if you look at this, these are actually fairly separate hypotheses. We're, we're guessing about the history of elite versus her age versus whether she had polycystic ovarian syndrome. So a back-of-the-envelope Bonferroni correction is probably pretty close to the truth here. And when you do that, their, their finding is just not statistically significant. If the authors would now like to take this and design an adequately powered study to look at that subset, then that's what they should do. And they may be doing that for all we know.
But this is not a finding that should contribute to our management of miscarriage. It should not be considered as such. And reviewers who are commenting on it, they're, people who reviewed this paper are actually giving it more credit than the people who wrote the paper because they're looking for some promise that progesterone might help some woman out there. Now, again, there's no evidence that progesterone works apart from this, we'll call this a gray area where maybe for women with three more miscarriages and bleeding, maybe there's something there to further explore. But what about potential risks? The study we mentioned earlier was about 17-hydroxyprogesterone, not the micronized progesterone used here, but the risk of cancer may still apply. The cancer risk in, in the 17-hydroxyprogesterone group was higher with women who used it in the first trimester. For the most part, we've been using 17-hydroxyprogesterone in recent years, starting at 16 weeks for prevention of recurrent preterm labor. And we did an episode about that before, but it's still a progesterone. And these higher and higher doses that we're seeing used now in the vaginal progesterone studies used in the first trimester may have some parallels to the way 17-hydroxyprogesterone was used in this new study that indicated an increased risk of cancer. In the 50s and 60s, when these patients were receiving 17-hydroxyprogesterone, they were presumably getting an average of 2.4 shots. Now, ACOG still supports using 17-hydroxyprogesterone potentially from 16 to 36 weeks. And again, we talked about that in a prior episode. And if you haven't heard that, maybe go listen to it. But I do think that first trimester high doses of progesterone is fair play to talk about cancer risk. ACOG has has even very recently said that they still haven't changed their stance on recommending the weekly shots for prevention of recurrent preterm birth. So the way that's dosed is is somewhere from 250 to 275 milligrams per shot, depending on, you know, what what type of injector is being used. So 16 to 36 weeks, that's 20 shots which amounts to something over a little bit over five grams throughout a pregnancy, which I think is a lot more than what they had used back in the 50s and 60s with those in this study where the kids had double the risk of cancer. So one could maybe imagine that if, if that association is true, then there could be a lot of, a lot of kids at risk for cancer whose moms took McKenna the way we're prescribing it now, potentially. But also, and we had also brought this up in that McKenna episode where you would think that that dose of progesterone should be a drop in the bucket because the placenta makes that much that like 250 milligrams per day. And with the McKenna, they're getting it once a week. And then with the vaginal progesterone, the 400 micrograms twice a day, I think that adds up to be like five and a half milligrams milligrams per week and over an entire just first trimester use or even through 16 weeks that would be 50 milligrams total so if you're if you're looking at that placenta making 250 a day and then you're giving a total of 50 milligrams more vaginally do you do you think that the cancer risks from the potential cancer risks from vaginal dosing are comparable to the cancer risks from that study that came out in AJOG with the 17 hydroxyprogesterone well i think i think it's impossible to say I mean, the same logic that you just made may have been used to support the safety empirically or, um, or theoretic safety of McKenna or other medications 10 or 20 or years ago or in the 1960s even. No one had any reason to think that DES would cause cancer in the offspring. So unfortunately, see, we sometimes wait generations to see the negative harms of medications. And again, that just emphasizes the point about having some benefit first. But I wouldn't disagree count it completely just based on the doses. There are different types of progesterone and different routes of administration and things like that. This medicine for for prevention of miscarriage is given earlier, very early. It may have a different absorption and, and, and slightly different chemical structure. It's not made by the placenta. Either way, as we've already discussed, if the potential benefit is essentially zero, then it's all harm if there's any harm at all. Now, unless you're bleeding at under 12 weeks and you've had three or more prior miscarriages and 
you ignore what I pointed out about methodological problems with using a subset analysis to make decisions about a group of pe- that group of people and ignore the fact that their p-value wasn't even statistically significant when you compare when you when you control for the multiple comparators problem and ignore the fact that that finding disagrees with the bulk of other published literature well then you might expect the progesterone to increase your chance of live birth to the same chances as someone with bleeding and only two prior miscarriages or or the 14% there's no way that that exact 14% would be observed in follow-up studies and and if you really look at the numbers and think about it and understand the statistics this is kind of hubris I, I guess one thing I would say is is that unless you're dealing with a patient who's had three prior miscarriages and is currently bleeding then you don't have any literature leg to stand on in using progesterone for prevention of miscarriage. It all seems very tenuous, but the people who have wanted progesterone to be effective, so, you know, the people that prescribe it, are going to look for some sliver of data somewhere that supports it. And and I would point out, too, that in April 2021, the Cochrane database updated their review of progesterone for preventing miscarriage. And and this was done after both the PRISM and PROMISE trials. And they concluded, quoting, the overall available evidence suggests that progestogens probably make little or no difference to live birth rate for women with threatened or recurrent miscarriage, end quote. And the only reason they said little is because of that one subset analysis where they kind of leave the door open for women with three plus miscarriages and vaginal bleeding that progesterone might make a difference for them. But as as you said, that's not proven until a replicated and adequately powered trial explores that question. Yeah. So to sum this up, if we're thinking about counseling, you know, bottom line is what these studies are telling us, what the Cochrane Review is telling us, without progesterone, 57% of women who are recurrent aborters who've had three or more prior miscarriages and bleeding will still have a live birth. If they're not bleeding, they'll have a 63% chance of live birth. And those numbers vary from trial to trial. The big trial a few years ago that looked at aspirin and Lovenox for treatment of recurrent miscarriage had numbers in the high 50s. So, you know, these numbers are obviously vary a little bit by the population and the age of the women and things like that. But overall, the number of women who've had three or more miscarriages, that's less than 1% of pregnant women. Vaginal progesterone might asterisk have benefit for bleeding women with three or more miscarriages, but that result is unproven and awaiting a replication trial or, or, or something that will show a, st- a finding that's statistically significant. 71% of women with up to two prior miscarriages, even if they're bleeding, will still go on to have live births. And it definitely, those patients will not benefit from progesterone. All these other groups of women will not benefit from progesterone. The women who do get progesterone and have a baby at this point, we don't know, but it's certainly possible that their risk of cancer will be increased, particularly with higher doses and, and earlier use. We could see in the in future studies 20 or 30 years from now a double the risk of cancer, especially prostate, colon, or brain cancer. And again, that's something that the sort of endocrine disruptor theory of how this of how these hormones work, something that has a lot of theoretic and statistical basis. So unfortunately, it'll take a few decades for us to know the answer, but that's the story of DES repeated. Well, this is, is definitely gonna affect how I counsel patients seeking progesterone in pregnancy. And I want to point out too that this doesn't apply to women who are going through IVF and getting progesterone for that because they don't have the ovarian progesterone since they have not ovulated. And and let's say they've got an embryo transfer, they actually need external progesterone to support their pregnancy. So, So if you're a listener out there and you're getting progesterone and you've just had an embryo implantation, then Please, please keep taking it. I think that that fact, though, is one of the reasons why so many OBGYNs think progesterone is helpful because a lot of times women with recurrent miscarriage are referred to and treated by reproductive endocrinology colleagues. They use progesterone all the time in assisted reproductive technology cycles and they know that it's necessary. And so I think that there's just some, I think that that just is a, a dogma or a, 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 a emotionally laden belief that has snuck its way into OBGYN through reproductive endocrinology. But as you said, that artificial cycle is completely completely different. And it doesn't mean that just because it works there that it has any bearing in natural cycles. Right. Well, let's let's transition to a different topic. In the October 28th edition of JAMA Anesthesiology, there's an article that looked at 
neonatal and childhood outcomes born to women who had an epidural in labor. And they wanted to study if using the epidural in labor led to any adverse outcomes in the babies. And they did a cohort study of 435,000 mothers and their offspring. And they concluded that the epidural was not associated with any increase of adverse outcomes in the babies. And Interestingly, they did find that it was associated with a small reduction in some adverse developmental outcomes at two years of age. Yeah, I'm glad this study was published. Uh, A lot of people, you know, just don't like epidurals, and I don't think they know why they don't like them. But when you kind of decide that epidurals are a bad thing, as some in the natural birth community have done, then you just start looking for reasons why they're bad. So patients will come to me and and claim or believe that epidurals stop their labor or increase their risk of cesarean delivery or, or because it takes pain away that epidurals cause less bonding with the newborn, which comes through experiencing pain, I guess, or that they cause adverse neonatal outcomes. None of these things are true, but the more high-quality data like this paper we have, then the better we can combat some of those things. What's particularly interesting in this study to me is how important confounders were and in also adjusting for the mode of delivery. The raw data in this study actually made epidurals perhaps look like they were associated with an increased risk for need for resuscitation or admission to the NICU. But after appropriate adjustments were made, these associations actually reversed. So if they had not adjusted for some of the confounders and mode of delivery things, they would have reported the exact opposite. And as you said, having epidural was actually associated with a reduced risk of low APGARs at five minutes. It was also associated with a reduced risk of having neurodevelopmental concerns at two years of age, with a particular reduction in the risks of developing developmental issues around communication or fine motor skill inventories. So someone who is just looking at the raw, unadjusted data might conclude that epidurals are not good? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and there's lots of studies and, and poor studies done where these sorts of appropriate adjustments don't occur that not just by epidurals, but by lots of things where exact opposite conclusions are, are published. So much goes into making a good study and particularly with these sort of retrospective type studies. It's incredibly important to identify as many confounders and lurking variables as possible and then to adjust for those accordingly. I think this is a high quality study, but these sorts of adjustments and for confounders, etc., are not always made, or at least not made completely. The simple omission of one or two adjusters could reverse the results in most studies. When you look at any sort of study, it's very important to think about what variables were controlled for and which variables were not controlled for, and if there are any unknown or lurking variables that could have affected the results, particularly in retrospective data. Now, prospective studies with randomization helps control for confounders and lurking variables, but with these sort of population, cohort, retrospective studies, it's really important to do this. I think this concept's what's missing, frankly, in a lot of the miscarriage studies that we were discussing earlier that are not, you know, randomized. Remember, there's a whole lot of poor research done in our field and in science in general, and often one high-quality research publication like this one can trump results of dozens of low-quality studies that had previously been published if they were not done correctly and such adjustments were incorrect. And epidurals do have risks, but overall, those risks are usually not permanent, and the serious risks are very rare. And the the common risks are usually mild things like transient hypotension or itching, maybe fetal heart rate abnormalities that are associated with the transient hypotension. And some believe there's an increased risk of operative vaginal delivery, but the literature regarding that is mixed. Yeah, it could just be that we're less patient when women have epidurals or or maybe just more likely to use a vacuums or forceps or something like that when epidurals are present since adequate anesthesia is a criteria for using forceps and vacuums. In other words, it might be the case that we underutilize operative vaginal deliveries in women who don't have epidurals for lack of adequate anesthesia. But the dosage of anesthetic use and the sort of the 
the density of the epidural, it, it probably does relate to this as well and affecting how well women can push, how numb they are, things like that. And they're probably more likely to get an operative vaginal delivery if they're very, very numb and, and just can't sort of figure out how to push well. And I'll also say in training institutions where lots of these studies are conducted, well, a woman with a good epidural, she may sort of get an elective operative delivery because she's a good candidate. She's got a nice dense epidural. It's a teaching case for the residents. So I don't do that, but I know that that goes on. So that's why a lot of this data is mixed about the operative delivery rate. But even if it is true that they get higher rates of operative delivery, that might not be a bad thing. It just may mean that the women with adequate anesthesia are more likely a candidate for an appropriate operative vaginal delivery. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say elective. I, I Like, I know this because I've been in training institutions. But if a woman meets indications for an operative delivery, it doesn't mean that she has to get one. Like if she's exhausted or prolonged second stage, she doesn't have, she still doesn't have to get an operative vaginal delivery. But if she has an epidural, then, then yeah, she's probably more likely to just because it's going to be less uncomfortable for her. But anyway, I think that this study kind of confirms what we already knew, or it doesn't really add anything new to what we already knew. And there was also a 2018 Cochrane review of 40 randomized trials that also showed no difference in neonatal outcomes related to the maternal epidural use, but they didn't have adequate data for the longer term childhood outcomes. So this study does fill in that gap, but it's also a higher quality study than many of those other ones in the Cochrane review. Yeah, it definitely is. And this is also important. I I think we mentioned this earlier in the year. I I can't remember now, but, you know, there was a recent study that was touted as showing an increased risk of autism with epidurals. And that study is interesting to look at. The authors of this study, they point out that five professional medical societies criticized the study from, I believe, last year that purported to show an autism link for significant methodologic limitations and and mistakes made in that study. And the authors of this study call that one controversial. That study was published last year, I think it was, in JAMA Pediatrics. And at the time was widely criticized, and I know I did, because it didn't control for many important confounders and lurking variables, as this paper did. But it received a lot of media attention because autism. Unfortunately, it seems like the way most people just kind of look at studies and determine the merit of a study is that if the study generally agrees with what they already believe in, then they think it's a good study. And if it generally disagrees with what they already believe in, then they think it's a bad study study. I talk about these issues in my new book, which which I think is finally going to be done this month. But hmm. obviously, that kind of approach is not how you should decide if a study is good or bad. I'm excited that multiple professional organizations last year were quick to release statements about the methodologic errors in that autism study. But the truth is, they could do that for a lot of studies, not just that one. And again, back to progesterone, I would argue that our professional society or the gray journal at least, is looking for evidence that progesterone is useful for treatment of recurrent miscarriage because it's so widely used for that purpose and has been used for that purpose for so long that there's just a prevailing bias that there must be some data. But if the same type of study that we talked about was used to to claim that epidurals caused autism, I think our professional society would have quickly criticized the study for its methodologic errors. So we have to move beyond this superficiality of the confirmation bias and apply rigorous analysis to studies each and every time. Yeah, and we should also note that there was a follow-up study in Canada about epidurals and autism, and it did make appropriate corrections for confounding variables and found no association between epidurals and autism. So we don't believe that there is any association, not just because that first study was flawed, but because other better studies have demonstrated no association. Exactly. I also do think it's interesting that that autism study made it past peer review, even though it had such methodologic problems that five professional societies had to issue statements about, but and and then was published in a relatively good journal. But peer review is broken and, and, a, and a flawed process at best, and it's pretty easy to publish almost anything these days. And journal editors are looking for novel findings, and, and, and here we are. 
Yeah. So always good to, you know, not just trust what we read, but actually examine it. Let's, let's move on to a different topic now. I think we still have time. There was another study with an, a company editorial in the July 13th JAMA that looked at children in Australia who had been delivered early because they were estimated at less than the third percentile by ultrasound. And they also looked at babies that were found at birth to be severely small for gestational age. So so they compared the ones that were born early because of that suspected growth restriction, and they, they compared them to children who were not born early but still were born small because it hadn't been caught antenatally. So in other words, they looked at the ones who were identified and delivered early um, compared to the ones who were not identified prenatally and It was like incidentally found to be less than third percentile. And they looked at their long-term educational outcomes. And this was several hundred thousand children. They found that the children who were delivered early with, with growth restriction had poorer school outcomes. And now some of the ones who were delivered early ended up actually being normal birth weight. So it was a false finding on ultrasound, in other words. And those children, even though they were delivered early, did did average at school or they didn't have poor outcomes. They may or may not have had those initial prematurity issues with maybe having needing some respiratory support. But, but when they grew up, they didn't have poor school outcomes. So in other words, the children who actually were less than the third percentile and were delivered early, had poor academic outcomes. I think this is an important addition to what we know about growth restriction, and it, and it may lead to rethinking of some of how we management uh, manage growth restriction. The reason to deliver a fetus early, meaning at 37 weeks or, or some cases earlier than that, the reason to deliver them when they have suspected fetal growth restriction is to prevent stillbirths. But this comes obviously at the risk of increasing iatrogenic prematurity. And apparently it may come at the risk of increasing poor academic outcomes for children who for children who survive, who did have a fetal growth restriction. So immediately to my mind, this reinforces the point about limiting our surveillance for fetal growth restriction to patients with the most significant risk factors for fetal growth restriction, such as patients with hypertension disorders or other diabetes, vascular disorders. Not all children who are less than the third percentile actually have fetal growth restriction. Some are just constitutionally small. It'd be nice if we could know more information about which children are actually at highest risk for fetal demise, and then perhaps allow some of the pregnancies to go further than 37 weeks, maybe to 38 or even 39 weeks. This might reduce the risk of poor academic outcomes while still maintaining the decreased risk of fetal demise associated with fetal growth restriction. The editorial that accompanies this paper also agrees that many constitutionally small children are labeled as fetal growth restricted because they are on the, you know, on the bottom of that bell curve for their size. But there's a difference between small for gestational age and fetal growth restriction because the latter implies that the fetus should be growing more and it's just not reaching its potential because of some pathology. And we have problems with the definition and the accuracy that we measure it by. So using a definition that includes abnormalities in the fetal umbilical artery velocity is more accurate at predicting perinatal mortality than just size comparisons alone. And the the predictive value of the way we currently do it, where we're kind of just doing growth ultrasounds, um, that's as little as 5% for predicting fetal growth restriction associated morbidity and and the detection rate is as low as 15%. So we definitely need more research and should probably also limit who we apply such poor tests to. Yeah, and they also point out that many of the studies that we base our obstetric interventions on, historically, these studies have very short follow-up with newborns, most of them just maybe the first six weeks or so. But understanding that an obstetric intervention might have an aggregate effect of worsening adolescent and even adult intellectual and academic performance is significant. And this begs the need for long-term follow-up. I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about with progesterone, long-term follow-up of these interventions. Again, just like with the progesterone studies, we don't know for decades whether or not our interventions, what their total contribution is to outcomes 
times. And, and we make choices that affect children 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now when we see women prenatally. Okay. So I'd say we're not ready to change our current practices about growth restriction because we we still can't predict who's who's at the highest risk of stillbirth and i'd say that's the most important one to to try to prevent but we definitely need more research and we need more understanding about the long-term implications of these choices okay i have a, an unrelated question for you okay what is the mcclintock effect do you mean the alicia mcclintock effect no no that's a different thing i mean the i mean Martha McClintock. Oh, okay. Well, that's easier. Okay. Well, the McClintock effect is this idea of menstrual synchrony. In other words, you've heard, you know, when women live together or close to each other, their menstrual cycles, at least the start of their menses, they may become more and more synchronized over time than if they were living apart. So this was something described in Nature, the journal, in 1971 by Martha McClintock. She believed that pheromones, which was her main area of research, that pheromones exchanged between women who lived in close proximity with one another had an influence on their menstrual cycles. Okay, yeah, I've heard that before, but I didn't know that it was called the McClintock effect. But does that actually happen? Well, apparently it doesn't. So her initial paper published in Nature failed replication, like so many scientific papers. A 2013 review concluded that there's no evidence that women who live in close proximity with each other have more synchronous menstrual cycles than if they didn't live close to each other. I think this is interesting because the belief of menstrual synchrony existed culturally before Martha McClintock sought to prove it. It seems like she wanted to prove what was already known to be true. That's what we do, right? In fact, she was just looking for the mechanism by which it was true, which involved, of course, her pheromone research. So she studied young women who lived together in the dormitories at Wellesley College. A publication of her research in Nature shows once again how a highly flawed research paper can enter into one of the most prominent journals Nature is, only to fail replication in further studies. Other authors came along and tried to replicate her exact finding, and they found that the phenomenon did not occur, and eventually evaluation of her original paper and study design and some of these other papers showed that the synchrony that she believed she had found was a result probably of of methodologic errors in her paper and that that the, the finding was actually an artifact of some of her methodologic errors. How can a methodological error screw something like that up? Yeah, it's interesting. And and these are the kinds of questions you have to ask yourself when you look at studies. But but for example, let's say you have two women who have menstrual cycles of the same length. But the start of the cycles are five days different. Now, if they both have 28-day cycles, then if you think about it, the most different that the onset of their cycles could be from one another is 14 days. In other words, one lady could be on day one and the other lady, the other lady could be her, the start of her next cycle, the furthest apart it could be could be day 14. Cause if it was day 28, that would be close to day one again, right? So the most apart you could be is 14 days. So if you take the onset of the first woman and compare it to the onset of the second woman and you find that it's nine days different. And then later you go back and compare those two women again, you might only find that they are only four or five days different. Because you've compared the start of the wrong cycle to the start of the wrong cycle. In other words, I don't know if I make that clear, but you compared the first woman's start. And then in the second time you looked at it, you compared the first, the the second woman's start to the first woman. You had them in the wrong order. So there was a bias in the way her data was collected. And it led to the conclusion that a nine day difference became a five day difference over time. But in fact, their periods didn't change at all. It was just misordering who started first, if you will. That, okay, that makes sense. And it, it seems obvious. Yeah, all of, all of these early studies didn't do something that simple. Yeah, and it wasn't just Martha McClintock. There were a couple of subsequent studies who kept making the same mistakes, although it's the kind of thing that by chance would probably fall out eventually. So that's what happened. Other people didn't necessarily correct the method, but just by chance they didn't have it order the right way for them so that they might have shown the opposite result where the initial was five and the subsequent was nine. So, but this is what happens. And we don't tend to scrutinize things that much when we find results that agree with what we're looking for. And that's 
exactly what confirmation bias is. When we don't find the result we're looking for, then we tend to heavily scrutinize the in the, the process or the study or the whatever and find some problems with it. This is the point about epidurals and autism. It's the point about progesterone and miscarriage. The McClintock effect is a lesson today for how confirmation bias affects research. And I, I think most people still believe in the McClintock effect. So there you go. Another cultural belief bites the dust. But I'm sure you would point out that Everything we've been talking about today reinforces the need for replication and for rigorous analysis of published scientific papers as we keep getting fooled and going down dead ends in scientific research. And it's it's more biased and error prone than many people are comfortable admitting. That sounds like a sales plug for my book. The book that you said would be done a year ago? Yeah, okay. Touche. <laughs> Well, okay, we need to repurpose the McClintock effect name for something better since Martha was wrong. I'll have some ideas about that. I'll work on it. Okay, okay, okay. Um, Well, are menstrual cycles synchronized by the moon? Like, that's what they're named after, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, No, they're not. This has actually been studied again, and no correlation can be found. It surprises me the things that have been studied sometimes, you know. There's a, there's a lot of moon hypotheses in obstetrics in general. I mean, you know, the average cycle of 28 days is the same as a lunar cycle, which is 28 days. Pregnancy is 10 lunar cycles, as some of the old folks will come around. They'll say it's 10 moons or whatever. But, you know, 10 times 28 is 280 days, counting from the first day of the last menstrual period. So, obviously, the fact that the lunar cycle and the average menstrual cycle and the gestational age kind of line up and all that, it leads people to assume that one might somehow be connected to the other. And people have actually done a lot of very intricate work trying to tease out some connection to different portions of the cycle and of the lunar cycle, I mean, and and things like that. But no such association apparently exists. It's even been studied in indigenous people and tribes who don't have electricity or artificial light and who spend most of their time outdoors and, and are exposed to moonlight to see if they could find an association between their menstrual cycles and the moon and they found no association. But but aren't more babies born on full moons or, or new moons or something? Like that's what every time I walk on onto a shift labor and delivery and it's a full moon, someone always mentions that. This is turning into uh, what's the guy on YouTube? Adam ruins. Oh, Adam ruins Ad- everything. Yeah, this is now Howard ruins everything. <laughs> I'm afraid that the new moon, full moon thing has also been studied pretty extensively, and there's no association between full moons or new moons and the number of women who go into labor. Okay, fine. Well, what about decreased atmospheric pressure causing women's water to break, like when the weather changes? I've I've heard that one all the time, too. Where do you get this stuff? I Well, I get a bunch of these. <laughs> well, it, again, it's surprising to me how many times people have done studies on these sorts of things. These, what I would just call folk tales. I think that's more PC than old wives tales, but folk tales. <laughs> this has been studied many times as well. And surprisingly, there's no relationship between a fall in barometric pressure and the onset of labor or with increased incidence of ruptured membranes. Now, that's not to say that there haven't been some studies which claim to have found a correlation. So, but when you study low probability hypotheses, like a change in barometric pressure causes women to go into labor, well, then you're going to frequently find false positive reports. But the bulk of the literature that's looked at this barometric connection makes it clear that no association exists. And and that, that illustrates, again, the importance of not looking for a specific article in PubMed that agrees with what you already believe. But why not rather look first for the literature, at, at the, all of the literature, or, or maybe even preferentially look for the literature that disagrees with you. But you've got to look at the sum of it and look at the quality of the individual studies. And then from all of it, estimate the confidence we have in something, not just cherry pick one individual article that agrees with what you believe. And PubMed and Google are primed to deliver that cherry picked result to you, depending on how you search for it. So tip is to, you know, avoid the confirmation bias and stop perpetuating false beliefs, I guess. Sounds good. Well, I'll I'll bring up more of my folktales in future episodes because... I do have a bunch of them. Heartburn and hair. I mean, my mind's flooding right now with a million of them. Or like, or saying the word quiet when you're on a shift and suddenly everyone has a horrible outcome. We should do that episode. Um, Yeah. Okay. Well, let's wrap it up. I I don't know if we're going to do that interview at the very next episode, but 
it's going to be in the near future. But people check the website out for links to what we've talked about. That's thinkingaboutobgyn.com. And send us emails if you want to say something. <laughs> or have folktales that you would like to Yeah, discounted. send us some more folktales. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be fun. All right. All right. Well, I'll see you next time. All right. Two weeks. Yes. Thanks for listening. Find us online at thinkingaboutobgyn.com. Be sure to subscribe. Look for new episodes every two weeks. Thank you.